cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, August 19th, 2011. Mm -mm. Ah, yes, it's time for another couple of hours of politically incorrect religious radio. Designed to, well, tackle the crazy things being said out there. And it's Friday. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And really, a, a lot of this comes back to one of the primary uh, major battle lines, if you would, uh, in Christianity, or at least in the visible church. And that's the, uh, the, the, the battle between the subjective and the objective. Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, objective stuff is outside of you. So when you look at like the uh, the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Third day he rose again from the dead. You, you, you get all that that stuff. Those are all statements of objective fact that occurred outside of you. You weren't there when any of the things that you're confessing there in that creed took place. And and what's happening in Christianity today is that uh, those for well I know this is going to sound like a generalization but and in some in some senses it is so with that understanding I'm gonna I'm gonna paint with a broad brush at the moment so that I can get at least get the, get you to see the two major categories um, the the those who are believe that they are hearing from God directly, that they've got some kind of an inner voice, uh, that the Holy Spirit speaks directly into their heart, 
um, that is something that fits into the category of subjectivity. And uh, and what I'm seeing over and over and over and over and over again, those who are listening to that subjective voice, what happens with the objective facts of what's happened in history that God has done for our salvation, that voice gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and quieter and quieter and quieter and almost to the point of disappearing. And uh, it's, it's it's not a good thing, okay? And so when we when we look at what's going on with like Patricia King, in some cases with Rick Warren, um, I would even argue with Stephen Furtick. I mean, where Christianity is all about you know he, him being almost Messiah like. Uh, the the thing that is over and over and over again, uh, uh, you know, that is emphasized is this subjective inter, inner revelation that you're supposed to be getting from God, and the objective theology of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole, that takes on a far, 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 far less important um, role uh, to the point where just give it time, um, what what the Bible objectively teaches gets shunted to the side, pushed to the side, kicked to the curb, forgotten, and in some cases just flat out lost. And so here's the deal, is that... um, just going with pure objectivity isn't exactly the right solution either. And the reason why is because we as humans, well, we, we live almost in paradox. And what I mean by that is is that uh, God gave us both a brain and a heart. Uh, he gave us a heart and a soul. You, you understand what I'm saying? We're flesh and spirit. So uh, you can't break this tension. But I think the uh, the right question to be asking is, what is in the driver's seat and um and what happens is is that you know I'm sorry but so many people who are into this subjective form of what they call Christianity it's really just rehashed mysticism and it really undermines undercuts what Christ has objectively done for us so that it doesn't really matter what you believe the only thing that matters is your mystical experience but here's the crazy thing. Um, uh, you cannot ascend to heaven into the presence of God um, <laughs> on your own. There's, there's nothing in the scriptures that says you could do such a thing. But who are you to think that you could stand in the presence of a holy and just God and for God not to destroy you? You, you understand what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, there's just, I mean, crazy, crazy things being going on. And so I think one of the major fights that's going on right now in Christianity is uh, is the fight to recapture the predominant, preeminent place of the objective, outside of us statements and, and history of Christianity and its theology. Now, the subjective does follow, but it needs to be hooked into uh, with with the objective in the center. And uh, what happens is when you put the subjective into the center, oh, man, that's why we're seeing so much of the crazy stuff that's going on. At least that's one of the ways of looking at it. So, And uh, we chronicle uh, a lot of what's going wrong here uh, in Christianity on this program. And, and basically, those who, uh, who buy into this subjective inner voice always seem to run afoul of the clear teaching of the Word of God, which in my mind is evidence enough that uh, they're not hearing subjectively the voice of God. And I don't need to hear the subjective voice of God. I don't need to hear it inside of me. 
God has given me given me his word. And nowhere in scripture does he promise to perform the miracles that he performed for the apostles and and you know or to recreate any of those things. Instead the miracles that we see taking place for the most part are people being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins because scripture makes it clear that each and every one of us is dead in trespasses and sins. And so when we see somebody being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and saving faith in Jesus Christ, that truly, truly is a miracle. And and those are the miracles that I like to see. And those are the miracles that uh, I think are the are really the predominant miracles that we're going to see in our life. As for hearing the voice of God, nothing, nothing, nothing beats the 100% objective Word of God. Uh, the other day, we, I played you know, something from Stephen Furtick, and I couldn't agree with him more. That if I want to know what God's Word says, 100% certainty I can trust God's Word, plain and simple. That being the case, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to bet any of my blue chips on somebody claiming to get some kind of direct revelation from God. No, I'm not going to bet a single blue chip, not one. I'm going to go with what I can trust, and that's the written Word of God. I don't need that other stuff. I really truly don't. <sighs> All right. So anyway, um, what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I've got a quick uh, Patricia King uh, gang update from a guy. I don't know if I've played him in the past, but his name is Caleb Brundage. And uh, he's got a he's got a, a video entitled Embrace the Shift. Embrace the Shift. And, and then we got a Lisa Bevere update. Uh, Lisa Bevere was one of the speakers at the, uh, well, she spoke at the Influence Conference as part of the a General Assembly of the Assemblies of God this past, uh, you know, really just a couple weeks ago. And so Lisa Bevere made the track out, and she was one of their special speakers. And uh, we're going to be playing uh, audio from an a interview she did with uh, one of the folks from the Assemblies of God backstage. And listen for this objective versus subjective thing, uh, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, then we got a new. We got. We're going to switch to uh, the news. I got a story out of the UK about exorcist schoolgirls. You thought Buffy the Bamf- uh, Vampire Slayer was just fiction? Well, apparently not. Uh, so yeah, we, we're talking about high school-aged exorcist schoolgirls. So yeah, we're going to take a look at that news story. I've got a blog post uh, from a blog I've never uh, read anything from before, but uh, I thought this was a good blog post entitled "What Cessationism Is Not." Uh, what cessationism is not worth passing along to you. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, time permitting, I've also got a White Horse in blog, a Michael Horton uh, article that I want to read to you entitled The Politics of Enthusiasm. The Politics of Enthusiasm. Uh, are you not exactly thrilled with Rick Perry and uh, his particular brand of uh, Christianity? Well, <laughs> you, you probably shouldn't be. And uh, so we're going to take a look at. Uh, Michael Horton's take on the current landscape of the religious uh, people in the uh, the are kind of taking a front uh, the front runner positions in the uh, Republican nomination for president. Um, people, I'm not exactly thrilled about at all. It has nothing to do with their politics. It has to do with their religion. And uh, then what we're going to do is uh, in hour number two, we're going to be listening to a sermon about community. We're going to be listening to a sermon about. Community. Now, this is a word I want you guys to start paying attention to. And I'll explain during the sermon why I want you to pay attention to it. But um, this, is a, this is a word that is being kicked around quite a lot, and this has everything to do with Peter Drucker's philosophical worldview. 
and the uh, the church leadership structure, ecclesiastical structure that he's created in the form of the purpose-driven and seeker-driven movements. So uh, you're going to find out why community is so important to um, Peter Drucker. So anyway, uh, so they, uh, that's, uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon called Community 101. Uh, Charles Hill is the pastor, the name of the church, One Community Church in South Jordan, Utah. That is a suburb of uh, Salt Lake City. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, adult beverages if you want to. Keep in mind, drunkenness is a sin. You don't want to be enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That is silly. Um, and, uh, you know, but and also keep in mind that, um, well, listening to Fighting for the Faith can cause you to have a frustrative disbelief brain explosion. That's just one of the possible um, as, well side effects of listening to this program. So with that, let's dive into the program proper. Yep, that can mean only one thing. We're going to be getting an update from somebody from the Patricia King gang. Yeah, name of this video, <clears throat> Embrace the Shift. Uh, here, here we go. Hey, everybody, this is Caleb with XP Media. I have a quick word for you, and I know some of you have been sensing this, and I'm just want to just... What are they, what, you know people have been sensing this. How do you sense it? Um, I I have been sensing nothing. Um, it's kind of like throw it out there at you and and confirm some things with you. There's some shiftings going on in and through the world. Really, there's some shiftings going on in and through the world. Wow. All around, and I just want to encourage you just to kind of like embrace it. Change is going on. There's shiftings with when things begin to shift, it brings about a change in and through the world. Yeah, uh huh. Begin to just uh, absorb. Begin to just absorb it. So you want? Okay, so okay, so there's shiftings going on throughout the world, and you want me to embrace it by absorbing it. What does that mean? Um, um. I, do I look for a porous portion of my body to hold up against the shift so that I can absorb it? Do I go and get like a brawny paper towel? Do I need a sponge? I mean, wh- how do I absorb the shift? Yeah, notice that this is some kind of weird subjective thing. Of course, he thinks he's doing ministry by giving us a subjective word from God. And um, really, it just turns out to be kind of silliness. You know what I'm saying? Absorb. Absorb it yeah. and fall into God in this time of shifting and change. So absorb the shift and then fall into God. Yeah, um, hearing words here that just don't mean anything. I mean, you might as well say the sentence blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. And, you know, this is absolutely, I can say this with absolute certainty, absolute certainty that blue does sleep faster than Tuesday. So just so you know that. Fall into the arms of the safety of God because uh-huh. he is under he he will hide us under the shelter of his wings. So So God's going to hide me under the shelter of his wings once I fall into him, but I have to first absorb the shift before I do that. Right. 
I'll get right on it, I promise. In this time of shifting, you don't know what it's quite going to look, look like. Just yeah, yeah, that's kind of an understatement. I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about even looks like. Climb into the arms of God and his arms just make a big. Yeah. He will protect you. Where is he so I can climb into his arms? He will lead you and guide you. Shifting is going on. Accept it. It's great. Right. Now, my question is, were you taking bong hits off the baby Jesus before you put together that little video? Because, I, you know, I didn't understand anything, anything that you were talking about. See, again, why on earth do I need this guy's subjective word from God, supposedly? His subjective word from God is complete gobbledygook and nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> Call me old school, but uh, I can go to the Bible, and that isn't gobbledygook. And not only that, it's 100% sure of the word of God, because Jesus Christ said so, and while he rose from the grave. Yeah, go with the sure thing, not this other stuff. Anyway, uh, (laughs) we're going to be playing a Lisa Bevere segment here, and that requires me to play our new Lisa Bevere update music. She appears often enough that she's got her own update music here at Fighting for the Faith. And since she's all about being a lioness, I thought this would be an appropriate song for Lisa Bevere. kind of weird is is that uh, it's weird the the weird thing is is that Lisa Bevere I think she's picked up some of her themes for her shtick that she does you know claiming that you know God the spirit Holy Spirit has revealed these particular things to her I think her shtick is actually somewhat based upon that um a song I am woman hear me roar um so uh, here is uh, Lisa Bevere and uh, she was recently uh, had a backstage conversation uh, with the 2011 Influence Conference uh, folks over there at Assemblies of God TV. You can find it at agtv.ag.org. Just look for Lisa Bevere. And uh, anyway, here's her conversation backstage. And see if any of this makes any sense and if we as Christians need any of this or if we just really need God's word. I'm Megan Bernardi and I'm here today with author, speaker, world traveler, Lisa Bevere. And Lisa, I want to thank you so much for being here today at the Influence Conference at General Council. And I was in your session this morning and you opened up by encouraging us to be beautifully dangerous and fully awake. Absolutely. Which I just, that was great. And Beautifully dangerous and fully awake. That's like falling into the absorbent thing. How would you encourage fellow female leaders to do just that? You know, I really believe that the church is in this season where the women are awakening that there is something more. 
that yes, it's amazing. It's amazing to be a mother. It's amazing to be a grandmother, which I am both of those. It's amazing to be a wife, but it's also amazing to be a representation of Jesus Christ in all of those aspects. And, and I believe there's an awakening where women are saying, there's got to be something more. There's something stirring inside of me. And I believe it's God lifting up our eyes and we're seeing the harvest and we need to respond. What we see around us, we need to begin to respond to. And I think women can do that in every realm of life. They don't have to be in the pulpit to do it, but it's time for the women to arise and awake and then connect with one another so they can change the world. Now, Arise and awake so they can change the world. Hmm. Sounds like a competing mission. Yeah, you remember the Great Commission? Um, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and commanding them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Yet Jesus has not called us to go and change the world. Um, I don't even know what that means. Change the world. Um, you know, I, I if I wanted to, I, I just I don't think that if I tried, I could. Um, nor do I see any mandate in the Bible for either me or my wife uh, to go and and awaken the absorbent falling into the big magnificent hands of God thing so that uh, I can or she can um, change the world. I don't even know what these sentences mean. With changing your world and women that maybe have that that desire, you know, and and can connect with what what you're saying right now, how would you encourage them to just have that that strength and that courage to take that leap of faith and step out and and really, you know, awaken themselves for what God has in store for them? Take the leap of faith and awaken themselves. Where is this taught in the Bible? You know, I remember for me, uh, it was just really a prayer walking from my kitchen sink to my microwave one day. I just So she's uh, teaching from her personal experience, subjective experiences at this point. Said, God, you know what? I am a pastor's wife. I'm a mother of four. And I don't even know if my neighbors are saved. And that's wrong. So God, I need you to open up my eyes so that I can really see what's going on because I'm so busy, God, with what's right in front of me that I'm missing what is all around me. And um, God began to actually quicken to me the one I thought, you know, like you pick your neighbors like that one, he's like that one's almost a Christian. I'm going to witness to that one. We can just <laughs> yes. like push her over the edge there. Mm-hmm. But instead, God picked out the ones that, that, in my opinion, were the worst case scenarios. And he said, you're going to begin to reach out to them. And so I remember it was as simple as for one of them, if she had had a baby and she was married to a WWF wrestler and her uterus detached. I know this is off kilter there, but she had to have <laughs> surgery. So she not only just had a baby, but she had had major surgery. And I didn't even know her name. And I just brought her a flower and I said, God is in control. And I remember one day being out with my kids. They were riding their bikes around like crazy kids in the neighborhood. And God said, lift up your eyes. And I looked and I saw her going out to get her mail. And I started walking towards her and God said, put your arms out. And I put my arms out, and it was a little awkward, and she just fell into my arms and began to cry. And she said, that note, that note kept me alive. You know, yeah, I, I just got a quick question. I mean, I, why does she need to have a subjective inner voice experience claiming that it's the voice of God telling her to do this when the Bible so clearly tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves? Um, yeah, I, 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 without her even saying that... Um, I'm pretty sure most Christians who are actually biblically literate would know from the certain voice of God that, yeah, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. 
It's, it's seeing people. Mm -hmm. It's being intentional to encourage them. It's, it, it's intentionally finding where they're at, meeting their needs, and connecting with them. People know if you're sincere or not. Mm -hmm. People know if you're just trying to drag them to church, do your Christian quota, and people also know when you really care. And she became my best friend. It oh, was wow. so amazing, and she was such a treasure and is such a treasure in my life. And, you know, God, God brought us into her life, and her two boys got saved. Her, she went through a hardship with her husband. But you know what? She had God to go through all that and it was it was pretty amazing so you know i believe that we do things near mm -hmm. and we do things far so we don't just go out and preach but we live the gospel everywhere we're at whether we're at target or whether we're in a pulpit live the gospel um yeah i can't do that the gospel is jesus christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification that's the gospel that's the good news. I, I don't get to live that. It was lived for me. Well, it's amazing, you know, how much God can do when we just step out just a little bit and, you know, the doors that will open with the people in our lives. So there is our, um, well, Lisa Bevere update. And again, you know, my just simple question is why on earth do um, I need to believe that this woman's hearing from God when I, I hear from God every day? I open up the Bible and God's word speaks. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, where can I go for sure for the, uh, to know with certainty that I'm hearing the word of God? Lisa Bevere? Um, the, the Caleb Brundage? Patricia King? How about the Bible? I think I can trust that. Let's go with that. It, not only that, I can, not only can I trust it, pretty clear that it's sufficient for everything that I need. Everything that I need. Not Lisa Bevere, not Patricia King, not Brundage, not Pamela Carter, or anybody who's hearing words from God. I, I, God's word is sufficient. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Okie Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Are you kidding? 
with the arms uh, nothing nothing real effect but then as soon as I just start we start doing the whole we'll put your left foot in your right foot in both of my knees you know one at a time I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain I said and you said start checking yourself I just squat down that's awesome thank you Lord for new knees in Jesus name come on come on um, I've had back problems most of my life and a couple of we- about a week ago my back had gone out and it was somewhat better but it was still sore uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head. I put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, 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 and you shake it. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. 
Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, God's word already says for me to love my neighbor, so I don't need a special revelation given to Lisa Bevere or anybody else telling me pretty much the same thing. It's kind of redundant, don't you think? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, the way you can partner with us financially is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And joining our crew is a great way to help us out because... Yeah, the more people that join, it really levels out our uh, it, well, le- levels out our giving in a good way, in the sense that um, we can count on that money month after month, so that we can meet our budgeted expenses. Now, we still don't have enough uh, people who've joined our crew uh, in order for us on a monthly basis to you know to meet our expenses without having to further ask people to support us. Uh, maybe one of those one one of these days that'll happen. We're still uh, short of our goal and. The nice thing is, is that as our audience continues to increase, so do our monthly expenses. So it's just one of these chicken and egg, cat and mouse kind of things. <sighs> Always chasing something, doesn't it feel like? Anyway, so uh, and right now the uh, summer months uh, they are just bleak. Um, it just uh, if so, <laughs> if if uh, you're listening and would like to have mercy on us during the very tough month, uh, 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 summer months, uh, we would appreciate that. It would help us out tremendously. And uh, and you know so. Click on Join Our Crew, or um, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, let's uh, move along here. We'll do the weird nut one first. None of them. Yeah, they're all weird. Headline reads, We're not like normal teenagers. Meet the exorcist girls who spend their time casting out demons around the world. This is from the Mail Online, which is a uh, a publication from the United Kingdom. This is written by Jeff um, Maish, M-A-Y-S-H. I may have pronounced that wrong. But anyway, um, so uh, I wish you could see (laughs) the pictures that I'm looking at here. There are pictures of high school girls with a big hunking cross in their hands and a, and their hand over a bible and uh, yeah it looks kind of like a graduation t- like a senior portrait kind of thing and um yeah, or you know maybe a audition photograph for the next editions of Buffy the Bam, uh, vampire slayer anyway 
<clears throat> Jeff writes, he says, uh, the five teenage girls might look like they're in a normal class, eagerly reading their textbooks and answering their teachers' questions diligently. But the textbooks are Bibles, and the girls all have crosses instead of protractors as they train to become exorcists, real exorcists who fight demons, uh, curses, and evil spells. Quote, People do look a bit surprised when I arrive, admits graduate exorcist Lynn Larson. When people call for an exorcist, they don't picture a 16-year-old high school girl. But uh, Bryn from Phoenix, Arizona, is one of the new breed of qualified teenage demon slayers who answered a call when the church made the admission of there being a worldwide exorcist shortage. But despite drastic efforts, supply has still not met demand for the controversial ceremony. The Vatican's chief exorcist, Father uh, Gabriel Amorth, 85, has revealed that he alone has dealt with 70,000 cases of demonic possession. So if the forces of darkness start getting the upper hand, who should you call? Evangelist Reverend Bob Larson of Spiritual Freedom Churches International and his remarkable school for exorcists. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Bob Larson is just a... He... He's a wingnut. He, he, Bob Larson is, um, yeah, he's not uh, reliable or anything of that sort. Anyway, think of it more of an exorcist franchise, the Reverend Larson tells Mail Online exclusively. The church just can't keep up with demand, but I have, I have 100 teams of trained exorcists working all over the world, and outbreaks of demonic possession are getting out of control. Uh, <laughs> I'm just cringing here, just absolutely cringing. So, uh, yeah, uh, so here's the deal. Um, the Bible does teach uh, that there is a such thing as demonic possession. It also clearly teaches that Christians, uh, those who are saved, sanctified, who have been brought to repentance in the forgiveness of sins, they have been bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, as members, as adopted members of the family of God, uh, there's authority that they are capable of invoking in the name of Jesus against demonic forces. And uh, but whatever you do, don't call Bob Larson at like at all. Um, I don't care how desperate you be. Don't be calling Bob Larson and, and his teenage exorcist girls. <sighs> yeah, just, um, friends like that. Who needs enemies anyway? Moving along um, to to the uh, the Cripplegate blog, uh, the the Cripplegate dot com is the uh, the blog address. This is the first time I've read anything from this particular blog, but uh, th- th- there's some good stuff in, on this blog uh, worth passing along. Uh, Nathan uh, 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 Buzinitz of, of the uh, Cripplegate blog wrote a blog post a few days ago entitled "What Cessationism Is Not." What cessationism is not. Much ado has been made both on this blog and elsewhere about the recent anti-cessationist comments of the of a popular Seattle-based pastor, <clears throat> Mark Driscoll. I, I don't desire to enter a war of words or become embroiled in an online controversy, but I do hope to make a helpful contribution to the conversation. Over the last few years, I've enjoyed investigating the historical record regarding the charismatic gifts, especially the gift of tongues. And I can only hope that the above pastor and his co-author will treat the material responsibly in their upcoming work on the subject. Who knows? Maybe they'll even have an, uh, they'd be open to having a two-views book. Anyway, I would also hope that in the process of critiquing the cessationist position, the authors do not create a straw man version of cessationism. I'll admit that based on what I've read so far, I'm afraid the straw man is already under construction. Nonetheless, 
In an effort to dismantle a fallacious misrepresentation before it is built, I offer the following four clarifications about what cessationism is not. What cessationism is not. Number one, cessationism is not anti-supernatural, nor does it deny the possibility of miracles. When it comes to understanding the cessationist position, the question is not, can God still do miracles in the world today? Cessationists would be quick to acknowledge that God can act at any time in any way he chooses. Along these lines, John MacArthur explains, miracles in the Bible primarily occurred in three major periods of time, the time of Moses and Joshua, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Christ and the Apostles. And it is during those three brief periods of time and those alone that miracles proliferated, that miracles were the norm, that miracles were in abundance. Now God can interject himself into human into the human stream supernaturally any time he wants. We're not limiting him. We're simply saying that he has chosen to limit himself to a great degree to those three periods of time. Now, cessationism then does not does not deny the reality that God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. It does not put God in a box or limit his sovereign prerogative. But it does acknowledge that there was something unique and special about the age of the miracles, the miracle workers that defined the ministries of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Christ and his apostles. Moreover, it recognizes the seemingly obvious fact that those kinds of miracles like the parting of the sea, the stopping of the rain, the raising of the dead, the walking on the water, or instantly healing the lame and the blind, are not occurring today. Thus, cessationists conclude that the apostolic age was marvelously unique, and it ended. And what happened then is not the normal thing for every Christian. The normal thing for every Christian is to study the Word of God, which is able to make us wise and perfect. It is to live by faith and not... By sight, But can God still do extraordinary things in the world today? Well, certainly he can, if he chooses to do so. In fact, every time a sinner's eyes are open to the gospel and a new life in Christ is created, it is nothing short of a miracle. In this helpful book, uh, to be continued, uh, Sam Waldron aptly expresses the cessationist position in this way. I am not denying by all this that there are miracles in the world today in the broader sense of supernatural occurrences and extraordinary providences. I'm only saying that there are no miracles in the stricter sense of miracle workers performing miraculous signs to attest to the redemptive revelation they bring from God. Though God has never locked himself out of his world and is still at liberty to do as he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, and where he pleases, he has made it clear that the progress of redemptive revelation attested by miraculous signs done by miracle workers has been brought to a conclusion in the revelation embodied in our New Testaments. So the question is not, can God still do miracles? Rather, the definitive question is this, are the miraculous gifts of the New Testament still in operation in the church today, such that what was the norm in the days of Christ and the apostles ought to be expected today? To that, all cessationists would answer no. Cessationism is not founded. This is point number two. Cessationism is not founded on one's interpretation of the perfect 
in 1 Corinthians 13.10. For that matter, it seems that there are almost as many views of the perfect among the cessationist scholars as there are commentators who write about 1 Corinthians 13.8-13. Space in this article does not permit a full investigation into each of these, but rather a cursory explanation of the major positions. Here are the different views. 1. People such as F.F. F. Bruce argue that love itself is the perfect, thus when the fullness of love comes, the Corinthians will put away their childish desires. 2. Uh, people such as B.B. Warfield contend that the completed canon of Scripture is the perfect Scripture, as described as perfect in James 1.25, a text which the same word for mirror is found in James 1.23. Thus, partial revelation is done away when the full revelation of Scripture comes. Some, such as Robert Thomas, contend that the mature church is the perfect. This view is primarily based on the illustration of verse 11 and on the close of connection between this passage, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, the exact timing of the church's maturity is unknown, though it is closely associated with the completion of the canon and the end of the apostolic era. Uh, men such as Thomas Edgar see the believer's entrance into the presence of Christ at the moment of death as the perfect. This view accounts for the personal aspect of Paul's statement in verse 12. Paul personally experienced full knowledge when he entered Christ's presence at his death. Five, some, such as Richard Gaffin, see the return of Christ and the end of this age as the perfect. This is also the view of most continuationists. Thus, when Christ comes back, as delineated in chapter 15, the partial revelation we know now will be made complete. Six, some, such as John MacArthur, view the eternal state in a general sense as the perfect. This explanation interprets the neuter of Tutelion, uh, Tutelion as a reference to a general state of events and not pers- the personal return of Christ. This view overlaps with the numbers four and five above in that, according to this view, for Christians, the eternal state begins either at death when they go to be with the Lord or uh, when the Lord takes his own to be with himself. Of these views, I personally find the last three more convincing than the first three. The, this is the author writing. This is primarily due, I will confess, to the testimony of church history. Dr. Gary Shogren, uh, after going in, uh, going, doing an in-depth study of some 169 patristic references to this passage, concludes that the church fathers overwhelmingly saw the perfect in terms of something beyond this life, most normally associating it with the return of Christ or with seeing Christ in heaven. Even John Christostom, who is clearly a cessationist, saw it this way. While not authoritative, such historical evidence is difficult to dismiss. By the way, that argument, uh, the argument that the author, you know, the, the blogger right here just made, that's uh, we, we would consider that a, a, um, a uh, an appeal to the exegetical or hermeneutical tradition within the church. Now, the exegetical or hermeneutical tradition within the church does not carry the same weight as Scripture, but it's important to look at how the church has handled the passages traditionally. And you got to have a good, good, good reason to depart from uh, especially earlier sources and how they handle these texts. So that's just something to consider. Anyway, in any, in any case, my point here is simply this. The interpreter can take any of the above positions and still remain a cessationist. In fact, there are cessationists who hold to each of the positions listed above, as the names I've listed indicate. Thus, Anthony Th- uh, uh, Thistleton notes in his commentary on this page, the one important point to make here is that few or none of the series serious cessationist arguments depends on a specific exegesis of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 11. These verses should not be used as a polemic for either side in the debate. Great point. Number three, 
Cessationism is not an attack on the person or work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, just the opposite is true. Cessationists are motivated by a desire to see the Holy Spirit glorified. They are concerned that by redefining the gifts, the uh, continuationist position cheapens the remarkable nature of those gifts, lessening the true miraculous working of the whole of the Spirit in the earliest stages of the church. Cessationists are convinced that by redefining healing, the charismatic position presents a bad testimony to the watching world when the sick are not healed. By redefining tongues, the charismatic position promotes a type of nonsensical gibberish that runs contrary to anything we know about the biblical gift. By redefining prophecy, the charismatic position lends credence to those who would claim to speak the very words of God, yet they speak error. This, then, is the primary concern of cessationists, that the honor of the triune God and his word be exalted, and that it not be cheapened by watered-down substitutes. And how do we know something is authentic or not? By comparing it to the written testimony of the Scripture. Does going to the Bible to define the gifts mean that we are bypassing the Holy Spirit? Quite to the contrary. When we search the scriptures, we are going to the testimony of the Holy Spirit himself to discover what he has revealed about the gifts that he bestowed. As a cessationist, I love the Holy Spirit. I would never want to do anything to discredit his work, diminish his attributes, or downplay his ministry. Nor would I ever want to miss out on anything he is doing in the church today. And I'm not the only cessationist who feels this way. Because we love the Holy Spirit, we are thankful to God for the Spirit's amazing and ongoing work in the body of Christ, for his works of regenerating, indwelling, baptizing, sealing, assuring, illuminating, convicting, comforting, confirming, filling, and enabling are all indispensable aspects of his ministry. Notice the Holy Spirit's still at work there. Great points. Because we love the Holy Spirit, we are motivated to study the scriptures that he inspired to learn how to walk in a manner that is worthy, being characterized by his fruit. We long to be filled by him, which begins by being indwelt with his word, which is the word of Christ, and being equipped with his sword, which is the word of God. Finally, it is because we love the Holy Spirit that we are long, that we long to rightly represent him to understand his appreciate uh, and appreciate his purpose as he has revealed them in his word and to align ourselves with what he is doing in this world. This, more than anything else, gives us reason to study the issue of the charismatic gifts. Our goal in this study has to be more than mere doctrinal correctness. Our motivation must be to gain a more accurate understanding of the Spirit's work, such that we might yield uh, better yield ourselves to him in service for Christ and for the glory of God. Number four. Sensationism is not a product of the Enlightenment. Great point. Perhaps the easiest way to demonstrate this final point is to cite uh, pre-Enlightenment Christian leaders who held to a cessationist position. It is, after all, difficult to argue that John Chrysostom, a 4th century theologian, was the result of 18th century European rationalism. In bringing this blog post to a close, then, here are 10 leaders from church history to consider. John Chrysostom, 344-407, said this, This whole place, speaking about 1 Corinthians 12, is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to by their cessation, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. Augustine, 354 to 430, writes, In the earliest times the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believe, and they spoke with tongues which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were signs adapted to the time, 
For there was this betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues or languages to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a sign, and then it passed away. Theodoret of Cyrus says this, In informing in former times, uh, those who accepted the divine preaching and who were baptized for their salvation were given visible signs of the grace of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Some spoke in tongues which they did not know and which nobody had taught them, while others performed miracles or prophesied. The Corinthians also did these things, but they did not use the gifts as they should have done. They were more interested in showing off than in using them for the edification of the church. Even in our time, grace is given to those who are deemed worthy of holy baptism, but it may not take the same form as it did in those days. Notice that uh, Theodore of Cyrus 393 to 466. Um, Okay, let's see here. Here's a note. Proponents of continuationism, like John uh, Ruthven in his work on the uh, the cessation of the charismata, also acknowledges cessationist views in other church fathers like Origen in the 3rd century and Ambrosiaster in the 4th century. Additionally, to this list, we could include the most well-known name of the Middle Ages, the 13th century scholastic Thomas Aquinas. But let's jump ahead to the Reformation and to the Puritan eras. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. Here's Luther's view. In the early church, the Holy Spirit was sent forth in visible form. He descended upon Christ in the form of a dove and in the likeness of fire upon the apostles and other believers. This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul explained the purpose of these miraculous gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14:22. Tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Spirit ceased. The source for that, by the way, is Martin Luther, a commentary on Galatians chapter 4, translated by uh, Grabner, uh, Theodore Grabner uh, in 1949. Next, John Calvin. Although Christ does not expressly state whether he intends this gift of miracles to be temporary or to remain perpetually in the church, yet it is more probable that miracles were promised only for a time in order to give luster to the gospel while it was never new or in a state of obscurity. That's from uh, his commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, section 3. Uh, chapter, uh, paragraph 389. Um, next, uh, Calvin writes, the gift of healing, like the rest of the miracles which the Lord willed to be brought forth for a time, has vanished away in order to make the preaching of the gospel marvelous forever. forever. John Owen, 1616. Gifts which are in their own nature exceed the whole power of our faculties that dispensation of the Spirit has long since ceased, and where it is now pretended unto by any, it may justly be suspected as an enthusiastic delusion. I, I like John Owen's way of putting it. Thomas Watson, 1620. Sure, there is as much need of ordination now as in Christ's time and in the time of the apostles, there being then extraordinary gifts in the church which are now ceased. Matthew Henry. I think you get the point. We got Matthew Henry and then John Gill and then Jonathan Edwards. Of course, Rick Warren has read the entire works of Jonathan Edwards, so you could probably quote this from memory. <clears throat> anyway, the uh, writer of the blog, Nathan Busenitz, also says this. To this list, we could add other names. James Buchanan, R.L. Dabney, Charles Spurgeon, George uh, Smeaton, Abraham Kuyper, William G.T. Shedd, B.B. Warfield, A.W. Pink, and so on. But admittedly, 
they are all post-Enlightenment historical figures. So I guess we'll just have to save their testimony for a different post. You know, Nathan, that was a great, great job that you did there in putting that uh, particular post together. And, you know, based upon how you're defining cessationism and what it is not, I have to agree with uh, with what is being said here. That, uh, you know, if you're defining cessationism as really, you know, the suspension of the major miraculous gifts that were used by the Spirit to support uh, and provide, you know, base the, the and buttress the preaching of the gospel, we don't need that today. Now, that's not to say that God the Holy Spirit can't work when and where he wants to or as he wills, and the Holy Spirit does continue to work. But, um, you know, there's particular gifts that uh, we don't need at this point, and uh, and those would be rare for the Holy Spirit to uh, continue on. Anyway, fantastic. Talking about enthusiasm, by the way, here, um, let me uh, read Michael uh, Michael Horton. Michael Horton, Dr. Mike Horton's uh, latest post entitled The Politics of Enthusiasm, The Politics of Enthusiasm. And the term enthusiasm here is being used as those who, well, think they're hearing that inner voice from God and may be suffering from that delusion that John Owen described. Anyway, uh, Michael Horton writes, he says, just as the Iowa straw poll concluded last Saturday with Michelle Bachman and Ron Paul uh, taking first and second place, Texas Governor Rick Perry announced his candidacy. Happily, the kingdom of Christ is neither threatened nor furthered uh, by the kingdoms of this age. Nevertheless, the way in which not only the media but professing Christians distort Christianity in public should be of serious concern to all Christians, including those who support the political agenda of offending candidates. Irresponsible journalism is the se- is section here. He says, The media has had a frenzy over Governor Perry's prominent role in a Houston prayer service. Secularists will be unhappy with any political leader who exhibits strong religious convictions in public. The furor over Michelle Bachman's former membership in the Lutheran Church Wisconsin Senate, which is uh, confessionally bound to the view that the papacy is Antichrist, points up the incomprehensibility of traditional churches, Catholic or Protestant, to many journalists. The press's hostility churned the already murky waters of religious and historical ignorance into a whirlpool of secularist bigotry. No one in the press corps apparently Googled the fact that the confessions of 10 Presbyterian and two Dutch Reformed U.S. presidents said the same thing. At the same time, why is it that so many public figures belong to strange churches or identify with extreme movements and leaders? President Obama's now estranged pastor, Jeremiah Wright, traced God's hand in the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack to America's sins against non-white, disadvantaged people. Quote, America's chickens are coming home to roost, he preached. Of course, it's wacky, but the only difference from a lot of right-wing sermonizing is the uh, choice of targets and reasons for divine retribution. In the last go-around, the media also poured over uh, sermons from close supporters of Republican candidates. Senator John McCain was embarrassed by the prominent endorsement of televangelist John Hagee. In September 2008, Sarah Palin's pastor, Ed Kalnins of Wasilla Assemblies of God, had to apologize for extreme statements he made in sermons about John Kerry supporters going to hell and myriad identifications of particular natural and man-made disasters with God's judgments on specific groups. Um, Front page enthusiasm is this next section. This year's uh, journalists are watching tape from a 
lot of sermons and televangelist rants, in spite of the astounding and dangerous religious ignorance of society's fourth estate, there is disturbing. There is a disturbing storm brewing in this campaign. However much the uh, press will get it wrong and and oddly declare the free exercise of religion somehow unconstitutional, U.S. politics seems more dominated than ever by what the Protestant reformers called enthusiasm, meaning literally God withinism. Luther and Calvin had in mind the radical Anabaptists who thought that they were new apostles. Hearing God's voice directly within, they did not need an external word like the scriptures or the external ministry of preaching, sacrament, and discipline. Some of the early radicals even sought to take over civil government. In the city of uh, uh, Mulhausen, uh, Thomas Munzer succeeded in, albeit briefly, until his violent polygamous and commun- uh, communist theocracy, the Eternal League of God, was defeated Oh, man. Like Munzer, many political radicals since have appealed to the 12th century mystic Joachim of Fior and his uh, prophecy of a coming age of the Spirit that will replace all external government and churches. Everyone will know God by direct revelation, and there will be no need for the law or the gospel, the state or the church. The religious left and the religious right have roots in the Second uh, Great Awakening, which in many ways carries on this radical Protestant impulse. And while Charles Finney's broad agenda of public justice and personal morality has split into two divergent streams, indeed political parties, they are twin offspring of revivalistic Protestant enthusiasm. Mormonism is a quintessential offspring of the millenarian restorationist and heretical impulse of radical Protestant sects in the 19th century America. Although Mitt Romney professes deep commitment to his Mormon beliefs, he has shown no sign of taking his cues from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in Salt Lake City. Still, according to a Pew survey, 34% of evangelicals say they're reticent to see a Mormon in the White House. That's ironic because the other Republican frontrunners not only believe that the extraordinary office of the Apostle is still in effect, as Mormonism teaches, but apparently share the hope of their closest religious advisors that they will be emissaries of the Spirit to bring a decadent nation back to God through the political process. First, Michelle Bachman, though she used to be a, uh, belong to a conservative Lutheran church, Bachman's faith seems to have been shaped more by the Pentecostal theonomous synthesis of Dominion theology. She has spoken openly of having had a vision of the person she was to marry while she was having the same vision of her. Influenced initially by Francis Schaeffer's A Christian Manifesto, she eventually enrolled in the Oral Roberts University Law School and then moved to Virginia Beach, where her husband took a degree in counseling at Pat Robertson's Regent University. Serving on the school board of a charter school led by Christian activist Dennis L. Meyer, she says she admired his philosophy of governance. Denny encouraged the board to do things and move forward, not because we think it should be done a certain way, but because God wants us to. She also became interested in the writings of David A. Nobel, a founder of Summit Ministries in Colorado. Having visited the summit for a week during my college years, even given a lecture, I can only say that it is it is as close to an indoctrination camp as anything that I've seen. Noble, a longtime member of the John Birch Society, links the Beatles to communism in extraordinary extraordinarily creative ways. Going on to serve on Summit Ministries board, Bachman then entered politics to try to turn America around. Second, Rick Perry. First, a little background. Sorry in advance for the autobiography. I edited two books in the 1990s, The Agony of Deceit and the Power of Religion. 
The first one investigated the theology of then-prominent prosperity evangelists such as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and the Cotier of evangelists especially uh, connected with the PTL and Trinity Broadcasting Network, including Joel Osteen's father. Along with R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, C. Everett Koop, Walter Martin, and others, my goal was to search beneath the televangelism scandal in the news to examine the heart of prosperity theology itself. After a Time magazine story on the book and its charges, a firestorm of controversy ensued, including letters from the lawyers of some of the prominent televangelists. The theology that undergirded many of the televangelist ministry was shared by other men in movements like C. Peter Wagner, the Vineyard Movement, the Toronto Blessing, and the Kansas City Prophets. Together, they were the self-styled next wave, a third great awakening. Behind this movement lay the latter reign, a.k.a a shepherding movement of the 1970s, a bizarre aberration, all all its own, that continues in the New Apostolic Reformation movement I mentioned below. Through many of these leaders with radical fringes of Pentecostalism, they found their way into more mainstream evangelicalism. Wayne Grudem, who defended John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement, published a rebuttal of D.A. Carson's excellent chapter in Power Religion, where Carson offers a careful exegetical argument against continuing prophecy. I interact with Professor Grudem's argument below. More radically, uh, more radically, many third-wave Pentecostals linked up with R.J. Uh, Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstructionism, radi- uh, radical defenders of the antebellum South, and other assorted enthusiasts, popular versions of dispensational premillennialism waiting for the rapture while the world gets steadily worse, gave way to an extreme and highly politicized postmillennialism, preparing the way for a golden age of Christian dominion before Christ returns. That's where the New Apostolic Reformation comes into picture. See Peter Wagner, Fuller Seminary prof and pioneer of the church growth movement, was the theologian of the Vineyard Movement. He also launched the phenomenon of the spirit mapping, where various cities or regions were identified with specific demons that were to be bound by international prayer warriors. I met with some of these leaders years ago, and I don't question their sincerity, but I do question their orthodoxy. Until recently, I'd assumed that the whole thing was just another revivalistic movement that had come and gone like an Arizona monsoon. But not so. Evidently, enthusiasm never goes away. It just keeps reinventing itself. According to Wagner and the New Apostolic um, Reformation circled, the office of prophet and apostle, uh, apostle moribund for centuries was restored in 2001 with Wagner and his associates as the chief candidates. While most Pentecostals have been somewhat apolitical in the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostal denomination has consistently repudiated the succession of the movement's leading uh, to the New Apostolic Reformation, this group is radically post-millennial and politically engaged. Its latter reign roots are on many points theologically heterodox, its discipline verges on cultic, and now it seems that it wants political power. The New Reformation, such groups envision, is more like the radical Anabaptist theocracy of Thomas Munzer that Luther thundered against in Against the Fanatics and Calvin excoriated in Against the Anabaptists. Why all of this background? Well, reportedly, Governor Perry has close ties with the New Apostolic Reformation Group. Rather than rehearse the reports, you can read and evaluate them for yourself, especially the Texas Observer story and the recent Rachel Maddow report. I'm not suggesting that we should uncritically accept the claims of journalistic neutrality from either source, 
But this movement and similar yet less defined subgroups will no doubt bring greater disgrace to the cause of Christ in the minds of a biblically illiterate society. You'll hear more about it in the coming months, regardless of how one judges the merits of the candidates, political positions, close identification of evangelical Christianity with radical enthusiasm, a direct, unmediated, extraordinary work of the Spirit in charismatic individuals will only become more justifiable in the minds of many of our neighbors. Its uh, politicization will only make it more difficult to have serious conversations with our friends and co-workers, not only about the common good of uh, civil society, but also the gospel. Great, 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 great post by um, Michael Horton. Yeah, uh, yeah, I am not a fan of um, Governor Perry, specifically because this guy's theology is whack. Anyway... All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Now, 
I understand as creepy and decrepitude has crept upon me and, and things are just getting creepy, uh, that, uh, that my memory may not serve me right, but I don't think I've ever really done a um, sermon review on this topic, and there's a reason why I'm picking it. But uh, here, listen in. Let's uh, do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon uh, comes to us via One Community Church, South Jordan, Utah. That is a suburb or southern suburb of uh, the greater Salt Lake City area. The pastor we're going to be listening to, is his name is Charles Hill, and uh, One Community is a fairly recent church plant that is associated with, if I'm not mistaken, Potential Church. That's uh, Troy Gramling's church out there in Florida. The name of the sermon is Community 101, and it's from their uh, retro church um, uh, sermon series. And um, again, I have reasons for wanting to play this for you that uh, I think are worth passing along. Community seems to be the big buzzword nowadays, and there's a reason for it. There's a particular worldview that goes along with uh, this particular emphasis on community. But let's take a listen to see how um, Charles Hill handles God's word and uh, tackles the topic of community. It's not to say that there isn't a concept of community in the Bible. Oh, there is. But I'm not exactly convinced that... um, Charles Hill is correctly handling God's word to flesh that out, and I fear that uh, he may be forwarding along Peter Drucker's views regarding the individual because, after all, One Community Church is a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church that is embedded with uh, Peter Drucker's um, ecclesiastical model, and there's a worldview that goes with it. So, anyway, let me kill the music without any further ado. Here is uh, Charles Hill and his sermon entitled Community 101. Here we go. Page 756. If you don't have a Bible, we have one every week for you back there. You can feel free to take it, uh, give them away, keep them yourself, whatever you need to do. But uh, page 756 or Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Um, really going to hammer down on something that's so important um, to the body of Christ uh, today. And I'll tell you that um, this word is community. And, and John kind of introduced it last week, not kind of, he, he did introduce it and talked about the importance of what, sorry, I got to start this little thing, talked about um, what community is all about. And I tell you, um, in just a second, I'm going to give you the reason why God said that community should be like one of the most important, if not most important thing outside of the gospel in our lives, okay? Where did God say that community is probably the second most important things outside of the gospel in our lives? Hmm. But let's talk about community in America and things like that right now. The Washington Post put out an article not too long ago that said this. They had done research and asked people about whether or not they have true community in their lives, okay? 
And um, the Washington Post reported that of the people that they interviewed, more than double have no one to confide in at all. So they asked the question, if something bad were to happen or you needed to talk to somebody about something, would you have anyone to confide in and double the people from the same survey in 1985 said, no one. Um, someone went on to, in this article to say, the image of people on roofs after Katrina, do you remember that? The people that were on the roofs after Hurricane Katrina resonates with me because those people did not know someone with a car. Didn't even know someone with a car that would take them, said Lynn Smith Lovin, a Duke University sociologist who helped conduct the study. There really is less of a safety net of close friends and confidants. We know that close ties are what people depend on in bad times, she said. And here's the thing. She went on to say, we're not saying people aren't completely isolated. They might have 600 friends on Facebook and email 25 people a day. But they're not discussing or engaging in matters that are personally important. What they found is that people didn't have confidants other than if they had a spouse. And if they were getting along with their spouse at the time. Because what they're finding, what we're seeing in society is because we don't have community in the way that we should have community. When a spouse gets sick, there's no one else that this person can truly turn to because we have very shallow relationships. Despite all of the social media and all of the things that we engage in, our relationships are growing increasingly and increasingly more shallow. Or if you were to be divorced, who are you going to hang on to? Because we live in a society that for, you know, since the 50s and 60s have really gotten outside of living in that family communal kind of thing. I mean, I've got parents that live in China, mother and father-in-law that live in Ohio, family all over the place. We have zero family out here. We're one of those people. And so what we have to understand is that uh, community is absolutely rocked in our world even today. And that's why the Bible talks about it is so important. Here, let me tell you this. Neighbors as confidants, they ask people, how many of you have a neighbor that's a confidant? It's dropped by half since their study in 1985. It's dropped by half. That's why we give you, you know, that's why we challenge you all the time. Don't be garage door neighbors. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about? Or is it just me, like my neighborhood? You know, like. Okay, I'm going to point to this out. Pay close attention to the fact that the problem that this sermon is addressing doesn't begin in Scripture. It begins with newspaper reports and polls and things like that. Ultimately, what is this thing that uh, he's trying to address? Answer, it's our existential need to, uh, well, it has to do with existential angst regarding the realities of the current modern world that we live in. Um, That uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, we've got all these technologies, we feel more and more disconnected from each other. And so there is an existential need that we that that is within humanity that is not being met by well the the way things are and and here's the deal each and every one of us knows exactly what this feels like i I resonate with the message so far, but that's actually kind of problematic because 
is this really uh, the thing that the Bible addresses, or is this some kind of a something that's projected onto the scriptures? Because we're not beginning with the sinfulness of man, because really, ultimately, that is the problem: is that our sinful human nature, our sinful human nature. And the consequences of our sin are the things that have led to these feelings of isolation and loneliness. And this is an effect of our sin. Let's continue. Let's continue listening for a little bit. The garage door goes down. Every once in a while, you might say, like, you might wave at somebody like that, you know. And maybe you, maybe their garbage can blows away and you take it back to the curb. And that's, that's kind of about it, right? I mean, you live like 10 feet from somebody, especially if you live out in this area, and you don't know their name. Um, there's 60% less picnics, 40% less dinners together. And uh, throughout the study, um, TVs in the home are up 90% in that same time since the 50s when they did this study. Um, we, we continually isolate ourselves with different things, TV, computer, whatever it is. And a lot of these social factors that were just a part of our lives is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Okay, that's what it is. Now, here's what the Bible says about that, because it's very real. Wouldn't you say that that's true? Wouldn't you say those of you that have, have, have maybe lived a, a little bit longer than, I, I know I was born in the 70s and in the 80s. I've watched in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, communities slowly slipping away. Anybody else? Anybody else notice that? Anybody at all? Okay. So let's dig into this thing and see why it's so important. Matthew chapter 1. Grab your sermon notes out. Let's start writing some stuff down in just a second. But let me show you something amazing on why the Bible has been talking about this since day one. Right off the get-go. But let me read Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It's up here behind me. It says this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, read those next three words with me. Say it again. God with us. God does not desire to be an absent entity in our lives. He doesn't desire to be the great guy that's somewhere out there in the celestial universe or that can be found in the pages of what some people says, say is just an old, dusty, kind of dry book. He desired to walk with us and he sent his son Jesus to walk and talk with us. Now, why did he do all of this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on there, Tex. God sent his son Jesus just to walk and talk with us? So you're going to use this prophecy as a proof text for your concept of community. Well, uh, uh, immediately my, my, uh, my discernment radar is going bing, 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 alert, alert, alert. And, um, yeah, um, I thought that the reason why Jesus Christ came was to live a perfect life under the law, to die for our sins as our substitute on the cross, um, to, you know, basically to secure our salvation, to seek and save that which was lost, you know, to put it in other biblical terms. It's a little bit odd for me to be hearing a Christian pastor taking that passage about God with us, Emmanuel, and turning that into a proof text for, quote, 
community. If anything, it would be communion with God that's being discussed here. But this is now being used as a proof text for just some weird definition of community. Hmm. And after John preached last weekend and talked about community, I came up and really hammered on one of the verses, too, that he had brought out. I thought it was brilliant, John, that you used this passage. Genesis one twenty six, where in the very first chapter of the Bible, God said this, let us, remember this, let us make man in our own image. So before man or the world or anything was created, there were us. Who are they talking about? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see it in the first and second verse in the Bible. Guys, I believe this so all my heart, and this is why it's so important. It's not important just because the Washington Post says that we need to have more community in our lives. Okay, oh boy. Now, now, so, hmm, yes, what we're talking about is within the one true God, there are three persons and they are in relationship to each other. You could almost make a sense, you know, make an argument that, yes, within the Godhead, there is, quote, community. But again, this is a weird way of approaching these texts. Or because somebody might, you know, not have a close friend. It's because this is why God created us. God created humankind to have community with him. Why else would he do that? Hmm. 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 Yeah. Uh, the text doesn't say that. You're, you're eisegeting it into that, into that text. Why else would God have done all of this? Because this is a pretty crappy world if you haven't taken notice. Yeah, the, the other part of Genesis explains why the world is not as good as it ought to be or as good as it was when God created. It has to do with our rebellion against God, our breaking fellowship with God uh, by disobeying him. I, I mean, do we think that he just spun the world into motion and said, hey, let's see what kind of chaos we can do? You know, kind of like the Truman Show. Remember that show where the directors were kind of in charge and they were watching people? You remember that? I think I've showed a clip from that before. I mean, you think God, no, God desired community with us. God walked and talked with us in the Garden of Eden. And who messed up community? Who messed up the community? We did. We did. But God restored that when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He restored the community when Emmanuel, God became one of us. Notice here, you go from uh, a, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's like this is almost a, a pendulum swing in the opposite direction of that language of uh, personal relationship with God. No, no, God didn't restore any kind of, quote, personal relationship that you have with him. He restored, quote, community. Weird. Weird language. Where did this come from? And that's important to understand. Now, Jesus doesn't physically walk and talk with us today. How is that community right now? Who is that through? The Holy Spirit that he left with us, right? Okay. Why did God do this? Why did he walk and talk with us? Why did he choose to do it this way? Because that was the community that God wanted to 
create. It was the community that God desired. It was his plan and his purpose that we don't live in isolation, that we truly live in community with one another. Have I proved that just a little bit yet? Not really. I see a lot of eisegeting going on in your sermonizing here. Okay, let's back it up. Acts chapter 2. Go there with me and let's read this. Acts chapter 2 on page 756 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2, let me tell you what's going on here. Um, Jesus had left. Now, you, you think that you feel at times that God's like a million miles away. Imagine being the disciples. The disciples were given the commission to go into what? All the world. Those 11 men were called to go into all the world. One had betrayed Jesus already. And, and Jesus had gone back into heaven and he said, just wait. I'm going to send this community that you want called the Holy Spirit. And so they're sitting around waiting, and 50 days later, Pentecost happened. Penta, the word five, Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus left the earth, something radical happened. And Peter got up, and remember Peter, I love our little motto here, no perfect people allowed. I mean, Peter was kind of a hero in scripture, wasn't he? What, wasn't he? But don't you remember that just like a few weeks prior to that, he had denied Jesus not once, not twice, not th but three times? And then Peter, with all boldness, stands up in Acts chapter 2. Spirit of God is poured out at Pentecost, gets up and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, you know what? The Messiah that you're looking for, his name was Jesus, God with us. And that same Messiah that you hung on the cross is the same one that took away your sins, is the same one that rose from the grave so that you might have eternal life. He was the same one that hung on a bloody cross for you and for me and you just crucified him but guess what it's okay because that was part of his plan you too can have salvation now through this once and for all sacrifice <coughs> what did he just do with the climax of acts chapter two hang on a second if you got your bible go to acts chapter two i don't recall the apostle peter saying that ah, but don't worry it's okay now, I'm glad to hear um, Pastor Hill here at least talking about Jesus' death and shed blood on the cross for our sins. But uh, the, the yeah, it's okay part, that's not in this text. And that's important because Peter did not say it's okay. Um, he's, we're going to pick up in the middle of P uh, Peter's sermon. We're going to uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Let's see what Peter really says here. Um, Acts chapter 22, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died 
and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor his uh, nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus, God raised up, and of of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah, the, the kicker there at uh, verse 36 has nothing. Yeah, but it's okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. And that's not what Peter said at all. He made the second point. Uh, you know, to, he said it twice. You crucified him. Verse 36, whom you crucified. So, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? God, the Holy Spirit, convicted them of their murdering of the Messiah. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. So here you've got... These people who are called out, then the ecclesia—that's what uh, the, the church. The church word is ecclesia. Those who are called out. Here's what what they were, and they, these new believers, the, those who've been brought to repentance, the forgiveness of their sins, and were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. It says of them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, the koinonia, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any as had need. Now, so here we've got this true fellowship. It's not just a mere community, okay? It, this is it, this is far more than just community that's going on here, and you know these people had fellowship, koinonia. Uh, that's a participation together with um, close association involving mutual interests, sharing, association, communion, fellowship, close relationship. That's what this word koinonia means with each other, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Breaking of bread, you think Lord's Supper, prayers, and awe came upon all and every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So now that's important. Important, you know, but I, I just had to correct him here. I'm glad that he mentioned the fact that Jesus died for our sins. 
That is the gospel. That's the, so you just heard it. But he's he, he's doing something weird with the text here. Let's see where the gospel ends up and what what ends up being exhorted in this sermon. And something amazing happened that day. So let's look, starting in verse 41, what happened? Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. A great outpouring of God. And so let's look at what happened in early community. The entire book of Acts is a book of community and what the early church did. But Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 really lay it out with some neat things that we can pick up on, on how we're supposed to have community here in our world. How we're supposed to. How we're supposed to. That's law talk. Not, not, that's not gospel talk. When we look at the community that was created, the fellowship that was created, those are the fruits of the workings of repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and that regeneration that occurred uh, uh, with those people who were brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They were truly new creations in Christ and immediately begin producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But notice he's talking about gata talk. Gata talk is law talk, not gospel talk. Okay, look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to, what's the next word? Prayer. Just want to see if you're following along, that's all. You know what I'm saying? Um, here we go, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. And selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and actually, get this, they actually enjoyed the favor of all the people. And it closes down by saying, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Those who were being saved. The Lord added them. The Lord added them. Now, community is not quite always that easy, is it? Doesn't that seem amazing? Uh, what? What do you mean community isn't that easy? It, it, this was as easy as Christ being crucified and raised again for our sins and for our justification. There's nothing easy about this. This came about through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The apostles, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, went and preached the good news to unregenerate sinners whom he accused of murdering Jesus Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, quickened their heart and cut them to the quick. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gave them repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and faith, and they began producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit immediately. Community was the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the new man that was created in them by the work of the Holy Spirit. What do you mean it's not easy? This was God's work. This wasn't any, it's not like Peter and the apostles set out and say, okay, how can we build community today? I mean, wouldn't you love to be a part of that? Doesn't that seem like off the chain, like kind of stuff that was going on there? Uh, I already am a part of this. Uh, hello. 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but have I not been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of my sins through the powerful preaching of God's word? If you're a Christian, this is what's happened to you. You have been added by God to the number of those who have been saved. Let me read that passage again here. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received with uh, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, I consider myself to be part of the ongoing number, the multitude, the fellowship of those who the Lord has added to, the ones who are being saved. I, I'm in fellowship and communion with all of these folks. So are you if you're a Christian. And when I go to church, my church... That's the visible calling out, the visible ecclesia, the group who gathers to hear the apostles' teaching the in fellowship, breaking of bread and for the prayers. This is what am I this is what the church I go to does Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Hello, something's off here. I mean, now most of us remember community like high school, right? Remember how much fun community was in high school? Do you remember this? I mean, you've got groups of people, right, with their specific DNA, right? You've got the jocks. You've got the smarties. I didn't know any other kind word except smarties to put there for them. Um, you've got the hotties. You know, you've got the... You didn't have that at your school, dudes? Don't lie. Don't lie. I mean, come on. Um, you got the goth people, right? You got those that were different. You got this group. You got the, that group. And then you've got the group that I affectionately term buttholes. I could probably give you a much better word. Remember them? Do you remember them? I'm just being real with you. Do you remember them? Do you still have them today in your school? It was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, high school was just a perfect example of how not to do community. Exactly opposite of what went on in Acts chapter 2, right? Yeah, that doesn't just happen in the Washington Post, doesn't just happen in high school. Actually happens in the animal kingdom too. I read this article about baboons this week. I know this is interesting, but hang with me. Um, baboons actually sleep, travel, feed, and socialize together in groups of about 50. It's very important, their social structure. I could go on and on and on. Actually, what was I read? We were watching a documentary on baboons. Oh, no, it was actually on stress. And they were talking about baboons and their hierarchy and, and how they do certain things to, to work together in community to avoid this kind of stress. Long story. But anyway, baboons travel 50, uh, usually 50 to a pack. Uh, they travel seven to eight miles a day. And uh, approximately twice as many are females and they're young. And when they begin to mature, males leave their natal troops and move in and out of other troops. Fre Not sure what baboons have to do with this. Frequent fights break out amongst males. This is high school. Baboons in high school, right? You with me here? Uh, to determine dominance over access to females and meat. <laughs> Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Um, the ranking of these males constantly changed during the spirit. I mean, you look all over the place and people are fighting and scraping for community. Guys, community is not easy. 
It's not what you see on TV. TV paints this beautiful. You watch any Disney film, you watch any movie, and it all looks like we're doing a whole bunch of things wrong. You open up Acts chapter 2, and it's like, what are we missing here? It's not easy. Um, yeah, I open up Acts chapter 2, and I think, I, I'm not missing anything. What are you talking about? As a matter of fact, this week is Passion Week, right? This is, this is Passion Week. This is the week that Jesus triumphantly, I mean, this week there was a cult tied, remember this? And and people waved palm branches at Jesus and he was the hero, he was the rock star, he was the Messiah. And they were shouting, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Right? And five days later, what happened? Yeah, welcome to community. Okay, I think you're kind of missing, you're, you're not really handling the text here. You started off with a topic, and I think you're trying to read it into the text. Right? Welcome to community. Um, guys, it's messy. I don't know how else to describe it. From high school to the baboon world to the Washington Post article to Acts chapter 2 to where we find ourselves here at One Community Church, community is messy, but don't miss this. Joy, pain, and freedom come when we engage the mess. Uh, you got a Bible verse that says that? Um, serious, I guess. I'm used to the, the emergent guys talking about the messiness of community. Don't miss that. Joy, freedom, pain, but peace comes when we engage the mess. Again, I got any verses that say that? God created us for community. He created our body across the greater body of Christ, not just this church, for community. And here's the main point I want you to take away this morning. Write this down, okay? Watch this. Write this down. Just like God created us for community, we are guaranteed to become the community that we create. Write that down. Uh, we're guaranteed to become the community we create. Um, remember, you just read Acts chapter 2, and it said God was the one who was adding daily to the number of those who were being saved. saved. So um, the apostles didn't create the church. They didn't create the fellowship. God is the one who added to their number daily those who were being saved. God is the one who creates the fellowship of believers, the church. Um, Again, we, there's something really, really off here. I mean, something seriously wrong here. As if it's my job to create the Christian community or your job or whatever. God is the one who creates the community. God is the one who adds daily to the number of those who are being saved. Come up behind me. Can you throw that up, bro? We are guaranteed to become the community that we create. We are in charge of what the community looks like. Uh, You got any Bible verses that say that? We're in charge of what we're destined to become. We're in charge of what we're destined to become. We, we, 
we weird sentences, weird personal plural pronouns. I'm a little bit disturbed by this because, again, this is all running through the law, not the gospel. We're the creators, not God. This is problematic at best. We're guaranteed to become the community that we create. So the first thing I want you to notice that's going to support this is point A, number one. True communities formed. It can only be formed, guys, when we're devoted, when we're committed. Actually, Mm -mm. No, see, that's not what Acts chapter 2 says. It doesn't say the community is formed when we are devoted, when we are committed. Again, let me read the passage beginning with verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the... Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added. The Lord added. It didn't say they created the community. The Lord added. So when we read verse 42 now, and it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread it doesn't said they it doesn't say they created the community by being devoted to creating the community no this is a fruit of the working of the holy spirit because they it says those who received his word peter's word they were baptized and they were added that day there were added that day about 3000 souls and the thing that they did, the fruit of God's regenerative work that occurred in them, was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. It doesn't say they created the community by being devoted to the community. God created the community by raising them from the dead, bringing them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. You see, the emphasis here, what he's preaching here is your job is to create a community. The biblical text teaches that God created a community through the preaching of his word, through the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And believe me when I tell you, the two are as opposite as the east is from the west, as north is from south, as as black is from white. Something is seriously screwy here in this, quote, preaching of community. Why do I say that? Well, because I know for a fact that one community church is a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church plant. And I also know for a fact that this seeker-driven church plant follows the methodological practices of Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. And I know that Rick Warren and Bill Hybels learned their methodology from the man who created the seeker-driven, purpose-driven church ecclesiastical model, Peter Drucker. Now, I want you to hear Peter Drucker. If you want to read this for yourself, I suggest that you Google this article. The name of it is The Unfashionable Kierkegaard. It was published in 1949. Okay? This was published in 1949 in the Sewanee Journal. Okay? And this is a very interesting essay written by Drucker. And in this, in this, um, in this, essay, um, Peter Drucker, who claims he's a Kierkegaardian, okay, that he learned this from Kierkegaard, is talking about how, how Kierkegaard believed that human existence is only possible in tension, okay? 
um, in tension between man's simultaneous life as an individual in the spirit and as a citizen in society. And I need to tr- I need to translate this for you. By the way, this is not really what Kierkegaard taught. This is Drucker's interpretation of Kierkegaard, which I'm convinced was uh, influenced by uh, the socialist utopian Martin Buber. But that's a completely different uh, topic for a different day. You could do the work on this yourself. I think you'll find it interesting. But anyway, Drucker believed, okay, and remember, Drucker is the inventor of the purpose-driven church, not Rick Warren, not Bill Hybels, Peter Drucker is, okay? Drucker agreed with his interpretation of Kierkegaard, which is unique to himself, and he believed that existence in time, that is, in the time-space continuum, in the flesh, is existence as a citizen in this world. I'm reading now. I'm quoting directly. In time, we eat and drink and sleep. We fight for conquest for our lives. We raise children and societies, succeed or fail. But in time, we also die. And in time, there is nothing left of us after our death. In time, we do not therefore exist as individuals. We are only members of of a species. We are only links in a chain of generations. Okay, so yeah, did are you catching this? It basically Peter Drucker believed that we don't exist as individuals in time and space. We only exist as individuals by faith as we stand before God in the spiritual realm. But in the physical realm, the only thing that exists is species or community or to use the term that was kicked around at his time that he learned when he was in Vienna growing up during this period between World War I and World War II, that the only thing that exists is the Volk. Okay. The characteristic, an autonomous goal, but the member has no life. The member, the individual, has no existence, no characteristics, no aim outside of the species. He exists only in and through the species. The chain has a beginning and an end, but each link serves only to tie the links of the past to the links of the future. Outside of the chain, it is scrap iron. The wheel of time keeps on turning, but the cogs are replaceable. They are interchangeable. The individual's death does not end the species or society, but it ends his life in time. So human existence, according to Drucker, this is a direct quote, human existence is not possible in time. Only society, only community is possible in time. So I think that's what's going on here. So when you hear community, by the way, I've pointed this out and I'm going to continue to point this out over and over and over and over again. Notice the language that is employed by purpose-driven and seeker-driven churches. Churches They will say something like this. In fact, Google the phrase. You'll be amazed at how many churches have this phrase on their website. Our church is a community of small groups. Our church is a community of smaller communities. A church that says that they are a community of small groups is saying that the individual doesn't really truly exist in their church. The smallest 
recognizable component in a seeker-driven church is the small group, not the individual. And this is on purpose. Because Peter Drucker did not believe human existence is possible in time, but only society is possible in the time-space continuum. We only exist as individuals by faith before God. That's why he thought faith communities were important, because they would help us to experience our individual existence before God, which doesn't exist in time and space. Again, look at the article. It's called The Unfashionable Kierkegaard. The Unfashionable Kierkegaard. Published in 1949, according to the Drucker Society, it was written in the, in the 30s, but it wasn't published until 1949. I wonder if that's what we're hearing here. Chapter 2, verse 42. Look down there with me. So write down devotion. True community is formed out of a heart of devotion. Verse 42. They devoted themselves, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching into the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, you have to understand this word devoted is not really what we think it is today. We're not devoted to much of anything unless it suits our needs, right? Anybody in my club? Okay, just checking. This word devotion, what truly God was talking about when he penned these words, devotion means to be steadfastly attentive unto, to give unremitting strong care. What it's really in the Greek talking about is a continuous action. That we aren't just devoted here and there or when it fits into our schedule, but we're truly devoted to community. Yeah, again, he's got this backwards. The reason why they were pros cartereo, pros, pros cartereo, uh, that's the Greek word. Okay, they were close at hand, attached to uh, persisting in, busy with each other. The reason why they were devoted is because they had been added to the community of those who were saved by God, and this is what they do according to their new nature. It's not that because they were devoted that they created the community. God created the community and added them to it, and this is the fruit of that community that was produced by the Holy Spirit. Again, he's preaching complete backwards stuff here. It goes on to define that word devotion as to be in constant readiness for one another, to wait on each other constantly. Is that the kind of devotion that we have for one another? And by the way, for those outside of these four walls, is that our heart? Because here's the fact of the matter, guys, we're all devoted and committed to something, aren't we? We're all devoted and committed to something. I like this little clip. I'm going to show you a little clip here from the Gridiron Gang, where they take a whole bunch of these ragtag kids right, everybody listen from up. all other different Whatever places, neighborhood. different backgrounds, different, you know, focuses. And their passion is to make them a football team. And watch what The Rock has to say. He's got some good theology in this. All right, so watch this. So we're getting our theology from a movie clip with The Rock starring in it. Yeah, great. All right, everybody, listen up. Whatever neighborhood you came from, whatever gang you claim, whatever hood you're from, this is your hood now. You're no longer a blood, no longer a crip, no longer an essay. You're Mustang. 
This football program will be three-pronged. Number one, the dorm. You're gonna have to learn to get along with people from other neighborhoods, different backgrounds. Number two, school. You're gonna have to apply yourself, become a better student. And number three, the gridiron. Hey, coach, what's the gridiron? You're standing on the gridiron. The gridiron is a football field. On the gridiron, we play football. On the gridiron, we do it my way. Not your way, my way. Your way got you here. And you're here because you're lost. Right now, you're losers. Mustangs are winners. And if you accept this challenge, when it's all over, come December, you're going to be winners. Yeah, that's like God. Thank you, Pastor Rock, right? Um, God said, you know what? The, the way that you've been living got you here. Uh, no, God didn't inspire the uh, movie that you just uh, played the movie clip from. And yeah, no. Are you willing to change everything about your life so that you can go there? Uh, no, actually, that's all law. And uh, what the biblical text that I just read that you were supposedly citing, it, it wasn't that they were willing to change everything. It's that they were brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and God gave them a new heart, a new nature that does good works, because that's what it does. Now that clip's talking about how to come together to be a football team. We're talking about how to come together to be the body of Christ in community that God created. And it takes true devotion. That's why our marriages are so messy in this world. Because we don't understand that the word devotion doesn't just mean when it's comfortable for us. It's a continuous act of laying down our lives and serving the other person, right? And it takes a lot of work. True devotion. Um, found a statistic on the longest marriage. Anybody know how long the longest marriage? How many years? 50, 60, what? Longest marriage? Help me. Uh, 91 years and 12 days. Some of you say, <laughs> some of you are like, that's not a long marriage. That's like purgatory or something, right? <laughs> not really. I mean, 91 years and 12 days is the record. Guys, that's true devotion. Um, the great theologian John Bon Jovi once said, uh, actually his wife said this, um, if her husband ever leaves her, she's going with him. I love that. That's true devotion. How many of you like me saw the great theolog theologian John Bon Jovi a few weeks ago? Because in order to have devotion for your spouse, you have to continuously love and fall in love over and over and over with your spouse. I've been married 15 years and I've discovered that to be the case. Guys, it's the same in community. It's the same in community with one another. We have to continually serve one another and continually fall in love over and over and over and over with each other. 
with a great theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that he really was a great theologian, okay, um, said this, a person who loves community, a person who loves the idea of community tends to destroy it, but a person who loves people creates community wherever he goes. Because the point of community is that we're devoted to each other, we're devoted to people. John puts it great, John 15 verse 13. It'll come up behind me. It says this, greater love has no one than this, than a person be willing to lay down their lives for their friends, for their brothers. Uh, You are aware that that's a passage referring specifically to Jesus' vicarious death on the cross for our sins, right? Guys, the Bible tells us over and over and over again to be devoted to one another in community. If you want to... This is all law. This is not gospel. He's preaching law at this point. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to. And that's not what that text taught at all. You've got to. This is all law. And it's now apparently... You have got to be devoted to creating, quote, community. And yet, it's God who created the ecclesia, the church, not Peter and his devotion, not the apostles and their devotion. Beware here, this is a new law that's being handed down. And it's being driven by a philosophy, a philosophy that says you don't even exist as an individual in the time and space continuum of the flesh. Create the kind of community that God intended us to have. We have to have a heart of devotion. You've got to be. We have to. We have to. We have to. Law. This is all law. Be willing to lay your lives down for each other. With uh, No, 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 no. I don't have to be. No. God laid down his life for me. That's the gospel. And it's the preaching of that gospel that God uses to create the fellowship of believers and those who are being saved, whom he adds to. Just read it in the text that you were citing. Your family, at your job, with your neighbors, and in your marriage. And people will fight to be a part of your community. Because remember, the point this morning is we're guaranteed to become the community that we create. Uh, The text doesn't say that. We are guaranteed to become the community that we create. So Uh, the text says that God added to those, added to the number of those who were being saved daily. God created the community. They didn't. You're mishandling this text. Devotions, number one. Write down number two. True communities formed over time. I think this is obvious, but we need to talk about this for just a second. True community is formed over time. Verse 46 of Acts chapter 2. What's the first two words in there? Help me out here. Acts 2, 46. Look down. Tell me what it says. Every day. Does it say every day? And day? Okay. Who's got, does it say every day in your Bible too? Or and, and day? Okay. We got all kinds of different translations. I'm looking for every day. True community is formed over time. So day and day, every day, multiple days, every single day. Whatever your Bible says, that's what it means. Actually in the Greek, the word every day means every day. 
Every day they continue to meet in the temple courts. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Every single, they underline those words in your Bible. You're like, Pastor, why have the last few weeks you've not put in scripture up there? Because I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to underline stuff. I want you to circle it. I want you to grab one from the back if you don't have one. Sorry, you can stone me later. But it's important. Every day they met. And what was it that their time was devoted to? Because true community is only formed over time. It doesn't happen overnight. What's it say? They were devoted to teaching. That's what we're doing right now. A lot of people think that church is just about teaching. We're going to come, we're going to hear a sermon, to sing a little music, take some communion. Now, now notice, watch what he's doing here. The text says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and he's finding a way to somehow negate that and almost make the text say the opposite of what it actually says. This is breathtaking. Do an offering, go home. No, it's, it's, it's about community, and part of community is teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. Now, you'll like this. If you thought devotion, which meant continuously acting in love and laying our lives down for one another, was a, a big task, you ready for what the word fellowship means in the original language? You ready for this? I don't know if you're ready for this because it's going to freak some of y'all out. But I'm not making this stuff up. When you research it and you look what this word really gets down to, the word fellowship in the Greek is taken as a form of intercourse. Okay? I mean, it just is. Some of you are like, that's my kind of church. I'm just kidding. Bad joke. <laughs> Bad. I had to do something to lighten the tone. That's all I have to say. Because I really didn't mean that. Okay? But you know what I'm saying. It, fellowship, that's how strong fellowship was. You thought devotion was a strong term? Fellowship can be taken as a form of intercourse, intimacy. Intimacy with one another was fellowship. Not shallow, but intimately. They broke bread together. That's why we've challenged you, especially early on in the church. Who's your two? We challenged our launch team early on. Two meals a month with two neighbors or two friends or two of your coworkers. Stop being garage door only neighbors. I'm excited this week. And I don't, I'm, I, I'm only saying this not to brag. I'm telling you this so that we can set an example. Um, I think this week we've got, there's a teacher here at the school. Uh, one of my kids' teachers had surgery. We're taking a meal. So they're setting an example of community. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a good neighbor. The scriptures tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But why are they doing this? So that they can be an example of community. And his entire interpretation is, is hinged on the law, not the gospel. This is off. To break bread. Um, one of our neighbors has a, uh, a, a child that's been, that was born like um, four months premature and has been in the hospital like four or six months afterwards, um, taking a meal to them. Another one of our neighbors had surgery, taking a meal to them. I want to let you know that we're practicing and trying to practice what we preach. Breaking a bread together with one another. And they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted. It took place over time. So let me just break right here. Here would be a good time. Grab this card out. Can you grab this card out? It'd be a good time for me to talk about this because we're talking about devotion. We're talking about time. And you're like, okay, pastor, how does this happen? I just, I'm just going to stop right here in the middle and say this. Um, that's what these little groups are for. 
Um, we can't keep track. We've had three or 400 different people walk through the doors of our church already. Next weekend, I believe, because you're going to do your part and we're going to ask God to do his part, that we're going to see over 200 people here. We certainly cannot grow larger and care for one another unless we grow smaller because that's where intimacy takes place, right? It doesn't happen. Community happens around the edges here. It happens with our band and our setup team. Yesterday, you know, we have a good time. It happens with our teardown team. We have a good time sometimes. You can come get intimate with our setup team and teardown team later if you want. We're going to be tearing down afterwards. We'd love to have you. But I mean, it happens around the fringes on Sunday morning. That's why these are so important. Now, if you sign this up, it doesn't mean you're committing to some weird kind of thing. Our continue the conversation groups are really cool. It's going to center around the fact that you're going to bring a portion of a meal probably. Most groups are going to center around the breaking of bread because it was important. It says that that's what they did. You're going to share a meal together. You're going to have a list of questions. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to talk. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do any kind of chance or anything like that. You just have to show up and get to know one another. And if you want to pipe in on the conversation, great. We're going to be continuing the conversation. These groups are only going to last eight weeks. Then we're going to shut them down for the summer. Okay, because we know you got a lot going on. But for eight weeks, we're going to start the foundation of community here at One Community Church. And so if you didn't get on this last week, had a lot of people sign up, go ahead and do that. If you've got preferences, you need child care, you're looking for adults only, you're looking for singles, you're married, what's it say, married, divorced with kids, married with no kids, I really wish I was married group, whatever, just, it's not on there, but you can make that one up. All right, we'll put you, all those of y'all that that wish you were married, we could form a group for you. We really could, all right? So um, special interest groups, pick the times you prefer, and we're just going to try our best to get you into a group where you can. You're like, I don't know these people exactly because true community is formed over what? Time. It takes time. It takes devotion. It takes fellowship. It takes the breaking of bread. It takes prayer. Is that really a priority in our lives? Is it? Is it really a priority in our lives? Because we've been talking this entire series that if you want to know where your heart is, look for your treasure. And where you find your treasure, you'll find your heart. Because your time is where you invest your talents and your talents and time is where you find your treasure and your treasure is where you find your, help me, heart. Time, talent, treasure is where you find your heart. Are you willing to invest in this? Because I believe this with all of my heart. The reason why we don't want to do this, the reason why community gets less and less and less. You have any theories? Help me out here. Help me out. Fear? Did somebody say that? Yeah. What else? What's probably the number one thing that keeps us away from community? Absolutely. I think the nastiest four-letter word that Satan uses to disrupt everything in our lives, from worship to devotion to marriage to date night to having meals with our neighbor to getting involved in the church to getting involved in community to going down to hand out free red boxes, whatever it is, is that nasty little four-letter word, time. But guess what? You're in charge of your minutes. You're in charge of your seconds. You're in charge of your calendar. And I have the same issues that you do. 
My wife and I have to sit down and say, when are we going to do this? We have to do this. We have to talk about it now. John Ortberg once said, I love this. He said, we try to create. John Ortberg, that should be a key as to what's going on in this kid's theology. Create first century community like Acts 2 on a 21st century timetable. That's not where it's going to happen. And we have fear. We have fear. We have, I mean, do we really have that kind of bond with one another? Are we really willing to have that kind of devotion and time spent? Most of you know I used to be a, a cop in the inner city of Columbus. Um, and there was this, um, some of you are police officers in here, and you understand this as a police officer, or if you served in the military. How many of you served in the military? You'll get this. Um, same, same on the police force. You can absolutely despise someone else that's a part of your team. But at the police department, we had these little, what I call, oh, crap buttons on our walkies and in our cars. And when something bad was going to happen, you know, when all 150 pounds of me showed up on the scene and some 300-pound dude wanted to fight me, um, I had my oh, crap button. And I would hit my oh, crap button, and I would try to survive until I got a little help from my friends, the cavalry that would show up on the scene. Okay, my greatest defense as a police officer was not my weapon. It was my oh crap button. And I could guarantee that even if somebody didn't like me, that when the oh crap button went off, they showed up because that was devotion and that was community. The brotherhood that we experienced there in the inner city was some of the tightest, strongest brotherhood I've ever experienced in my life. The church should have an oh crap button. And we should be able to hit it any time and know that we're going to get some help from our friends. But that only happens when we have devotion. It only happens over time. Because remember... Yeah, notice again, it's not God adding, it's you making. Big difference. Big, big, huge, ginormous difference. We are guaranteed to become the community that we create. There's one guarantee about community. There could be fear. There, it, could, it could get messed up. It could be ugly. We might not like somebody. But here's the thing. Whatever our picture of community is, we are guaranteed to be that picture because we create that. Okay? Number three. Last one. Write this down. Again, the text says that God's the one who added to their number. They didn't create it. God did, and God added. There's some serious mischief going on with this because, I mean, all of a sudden it's a sin now that you haven't had community. Hmm. True community is formed through the mystery of the Spirit. I, I, I wish I could just say that if we just threw a bunch of people together that had the same kind of interest, the same kind of this, the same kind of that, that, that we were going to change the world. But that's not how it happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it took the Spirit of God to come down to shake people up. Remember this? I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, it took the Spirit of God to come down and cut them to the quick and bring them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and to regenerate them. That's not how you're taking this text, which is how the text is meant to be taken. Um, hmm. In fact, the Christians were all, they were like huddling in an upper room, scared to death. Remember this? In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. That word tongues, if you look at your footnote, means languages as the Spirit enabled them. They got up. There were people from all around the world that were there on the day of Pentecost. And Peter got up, and people began to speak, and they began to share the gospel in other languages. 
so that the people that understood only a certain kind of language could be understood that day. It was a mystery of the Spirit. The entire passage goes on, but let's look at the one we're focusing on, verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, verse 44, if you don't believe that the mystery of the Spirit has to happen in community, look at verse 44. And think about where we are today. Think about if we could ever become this kind of community. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Guys, that's only going to come through devotion and through time. You're like, you're asking me to sell everything I have for one another? I don't know. I don't know what God will ask you to do. I don't know what God will ask you to sell so that you could help somebody else out. I don't know what God's going to miraculously, mysteriously speak into your life so that you can be a blessing to someone else. But I know this, that there's a lot of people not being blessed because we're not listening to the Spirit of God, because we're not giving the time that we should, because we're not devoted to one another. You see what I'm saying? Oh, by the way, I preach to myself every week, okay? So don't, I mean, some of you look stunned because you know it's true and I'm preaching right back to myself. Guys, this is true community. This is real community. This is where brothers and sisters lay their lives down for their friends. Uh, No, this is where brothers and sisters gather around the one who laid down his life for the ungodly, Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's also practical, though, guys. Um, the mystery of the Spirit's practical. They gave to each other. They had need. Um, we don't know if you have a need unless you let us know. We don't know that you're sick unless you let us know. That little link card that I was talking about in the beginning was not just for um, uh, so that we could give you a free gift at the back or so that you could sign up for things. There's a little thing on the back that says, you know, do you have comments, questions, prayer requests? That's where we know you have a need. We can't know that as a body of believers unless you tell us. And that takes humility to step up and go, man, I have a need. I need a little help from my friends right now. I have a need and I need some friends and I need some people to come around me. And here's the thing. I mean, are we all going to be friends? I mean, is that really, I, I don't think if our church grows And God, you know, the church here, uh, Peter got up and preached the gospel and 3,000 people got saved. They didn't all know each other. And that was probably just the men that were counted that day. I mean, are we all going to get to be friends with, 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 with our rock star pastor up here that was playing the guitar? I mean, he's amazing. I mean, are we all going to get to be his friend? I don't even know if I'm his friend. I try. You should see how hard it is for our staff to get together. I have to schedule it. Tomorrow night we're having a a staff outing because if I don't schedule it, it doesn't happen. It it just doesn't happen because we all have our stuff. Are we all going to be friends? No. Are we all going to know the pastors? No. Are we all going to know each other or the people that we want? No. It's not going to happen in all the things. Can the pastors and the staff care for everyone and the needs represented here every single week? Can we? No way. Are you looking for perfect community? Are you Right now you're going, man, this is kind of cool. Kind of liking what Pastor Charles is saying. It's kind of cool. It's kind of bringing up retro church. Kind of happened in Acts chapter 2. Kind of going against Washington Post. Kind of going to be like the baboons. I like this. Not like high school, like the baboons. I'm liking this. Guys, if you're looking for perfect community, you're not going to find it here. Just like your marriage isn't perfect. 
Just like your friendships aren't perfect, we're not going to have perfect community in the bonds of this church. My challenge is to you is to give it a shot, to give it a try, to check it out. It's a messy thing. The call to discipleship and community is not easy. As a matter of fact, um, it was so hard that it got Jesus. Jesus came to promote community and to give us true life. And Jesus came to promote community. It's the first I've heard of it. Jesus kind of got arrested. He kind of got tried. He kind of got murdered. That all happened in this week, the Passion Week, the Holy Week. He came to give us life. He came to pour out his life for us, and we killed him. And by the way, we still do that to each other in the church today, don't we? We do that to one another. I know that I say things and do things that I should never do. And Jesus said, if you want to find your life, he said, if you want to find true life, you got to lose your life. So apparently it's up to you. You need to lose your life in order to find life. Where is the gospel here? It is missing. Got to be devoted to the right thing. You've got to put your time in the right place. And you've got to understand. You've got to. You've got to. You've got to. I'm getting tired hearing about this. Understand that there is mystery in the spirit. They cared for each other. They were devoted. They spent time together. They ate together. They prayed together. And as they did, let's look at this last verse as we close. The very last verse, verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And when they did this, guys, it says they also sent out mailers and they did the Hoosier 2 campaign. And they went out and handed out free red boxes and they served others in community and they had a great band and the pastor played video clips and said the word crap in church and things like I've never heard before. And they were really relevant. They were really cutting edge and they were young and they had great coffee that goes to serve the people in Rwanda, which we started doing, I think this week. Is, I mean, is that what it says? It says, no, as they were devoted to each other, as they broke bread together, as they fellowshiped together, as they prayed together, and as the Spirit of God showed up, it was a community that people couldn't wait to be a part of. It says that the Lord added to their number, what, every Sunday? No, it says... Who added to their number? The Lord did. Watch the verbs. The verbs matter in the grammar and the text. Every single day. This was a community that they were dying to be a part of. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Guys, we are guaranteed to become the community that we create. Are we devoted? Text doesn't say that. He's got it 180 degrees backward. Are we willing to spend the time? Are we... um, Truly willing to lay it all down. Because we're guaranteed to become the community that we create. Um, You're probably wondering, this is my daughter, Grace, and she's pretty awesome. Um, And uh, she's 10, right? Man, you look like you went through war. That's awesome. Um, she loves art. She loves doing art. And, and I asked her to come help me today. And um, 
this, guys, this is, this is the whole message summed up in, 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 in one phrase. It's summed up in the fact that, that we are a blank canvas at One Community Church, and you're a blank canvas. And the one thing that we can be guaranteed of is that we own the paintbrush. The paintbrush is ours. And whatever community that's going to be created here at One Community Church in our lives is up to us. Because we are guaranteed to become the community that we create. If we don't like the way that our community looks here, it's our fault. We don't like the way community acts here, it's our fault. We don't like what's going on, it's our fault because we own the blank canvas. Again, this is all 100% law. Let me read to you a passage from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now shall we be reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Hmm. It's interesting. This, these themes of reconciliation and dying for your friends and things like that have, well, they've been in the sermon, but they haven't been really picked up on in the way that the Scripture teaches them. As a result of it, now we're getting beaten over the head. Apparently, it's a sin that we haven't created community, and the community that we create is the community that we're going to be and all that kind of stuff, and it's all the thing you have to do. And yet, the passage said in God added, God added, God added to their number daily. They didn't add people. God did. God is the one who created that community. And he also created the community that you and I are a part of because we're part of that same community. That's why we confess in the creeds and we believe in the communion of the saints. Think about it. And I hope we can be an Acts 2 kind of church where people are adding daily, not so that we can have a big church, but so that we can shut down the highway to hell. That'd be my goal. How about you? Didn't she do a great job? You're going to shut down the highway to hell, really? Okay. Great job. Give my daughter a hand. 
Thanks, you can go down. You can go back down. So here's what, here's, here's what I want you to understand. Um, let me read this to close. Because I still got like two minutes and I'd hate to waste all my time on the timer there. Let me read this. Um, they did a, uh, we're talking about intimacy and, and just, you know, they've done studies. Touch is the most basic expression of, of community, of social connectedness. Um, Hundreds of studies over the past 40 years have helped us understand the powerful effects of physical touch, which is part of community. We're not, and don't hear me wrong, we're not like, we're not saying that, that in these communities you've got to touch each other, right? That's a little odd. Um, but I, I just want you to understand the power of community. And community can be expressed through a touch, through a handshake, through a hug, through a, a whatever. But just listen to this. Listen to the odd ways that we desire community. Listen to how at the most basic level we desire this. Um, they, in one study, uh, tactile kinesthetic stimulation was given to preterm babies. Researchers found that touch was very powerful. The touching or stimulation community consisted of body stroking and passive movements of the limbs for three 15-minute periods for 10 days. The touch and move babies averaged a 47% greater weight gain per day. They were also more active and alert during sleep-wake behavior observations. Finally, those babies who had human touch and movement had a hospital stay six days shorter than those that weren't touched. Interestingly enough, observations made by researchers decades ago as they watched groups of monkeys, here we go again, watch this, provided additional information about the power of touch. They went on to say um, that they compared monkey, monkeys who were raised together in cages and monkeys who only social contact came through seeing, hearing, and smelling other monkeys. The Harlows found that the monkeys who didn't have touch or body contact with other monkeys, community, community, grew up with a variety of emotional abnormalities. As these monkeys grew older, early self-aggression turned into aggression against other monkeys. Perhaps the most striking was the example of how mothers behave with their young. Mothers who grew up without touch showed less warmth and affection toward their offspring. Did you like that part? I'm just... Um, mothers who grew up without touch showed less warmth and affection toward their offspring. Some were actually physically abusive to their babies. Watch this. this is, I love this one. This is cool. Unusual study was conducted in a university library. As they left the library, students were stopped and asked how satisfied they were with the service they had received. And what the students didn't know was that the study wasn't about the library. It was about touch. Because they asked the library clerk to touch 50% of the students just unknowingly on the hand when she gave the library card back to them. But however casual and meaningless this contact may have seemed... The researchers found that the students who had been touched had much higher opinions of the library than those that didn't because we are crying out for community and touch from one another. We are crying out for that sort of community. Here's the one that blows my mind. A famous research study was done in an orphanage and the researchers wondered, get this, get this, get this. They wondered why at one particular orphanage children were living while at the other one children were dying. 
They were very likely to die. And they went in and they looked at this study and they found that there was one variable, that the assistant at the orphanage where the children were living simply hugged and held the children on regular occasion. And at the other one, the kids were not touched, they were not held, and they physically died. Why? Because God intended us to live in community. He created us for community. He desired us to be in community. And we're guaranteed to be the community that we create. Would you stand up with me? We're going to do something here. Stand up. Here's what I'm going to do. Never done this before. You might think it's weird, but just step across the aisle, grab each other's hand. I mean, we just talked about touch, so do it. If you're single and you're, I hate it when I'm at church and they make me hold somebody else's hand. It's always awkward when it's some big hairy guy next to me. You know what I'm saying? And you're next to a very good-looking young lady. You can thank me later. All right, just do that. Father God, we want to be the powerful community. Okay, we're done. So here, here's the deal, okay? There's truth about the fact that we are meant to be part of community. I'm not denying that, nor am I poo-pooing that. But what I am saying is, is that what he did with this text, with the text that he was trying to teach from, did not support the contentions that he was making regarding, quote, community. In fact, he was twisting the text and really kind of putting it upon us that it's our responsibility to create community, yet those texts taught that God is the one who creates the church. He preached an all-law sermon and practically left out the gospel. I mean, it was there, it got mentioned, but never really taught. As a result of it, I mean, you know, you come away with the idea that it's your job to create community. And if you're not creating community, you're doing something wrong in the eyes of God. Hmm. And again, I want you to listen carefully out of what's going on out there in the greater Christian culture. And you should be suspicious of the word community, the way it's being used. Because I don't think it's being used biblically. I think it's being used in such a way that a worldview that denies the existence of an individual. Keep in mind, the the premier seeker-driven churches, there are no individual members. There's partners. There's members of the community. There's people who are part of the community. But there's no individual members anymore. This is what's there's a new push, and this push is all in the direction of community. And the individual is uh, well, it's he's not existing anymore. But you are both an individual and a member of a community. It's not an either or. It's both and. The church is those who are called out. It is the community or the fellowship of individual believers. That's not what we're hearing from these guys. We're hearing something different. And I should tell you that from history's point of view, mischief, much mischief has occurred in human history 
with teaching and an emphasis like this. Much, very dangerous, life-threatening mischief has been done when the individual ceases to exist and the smallest unit is a community. Something to keep in mind. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click one. We truly could use your help, and thank you for your support. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.